Please take your Bibles, join me in the book of Acts as we continue our Wednesday night series through this book. We are hoping to consider what it means to be a church in action. Over the last two messages, we covered the first seven verses in chapter 6. Too much detail has been covered to try and recap all of that. If you missed it, please take the time to listen to it. And for the sake of context, I owe you where we're at here. And so I'll just quickly remind you that this church in Jerusalem was experiencing phenomenal growth. The kind of growth growth that would really scare some Baptists. And with more people comes the potential for more problems. Talk to a parent of one, oh, having kids is great. Talk to a parent of six, having kids is still great. It comes with problems. Amen. More people, more problems. Mo people, mo problems. <laughs> trying to wake y'all up. And sure enough, a murmuring arose between the Grecians and the Hebrews. And I understand why it happened, Amen. We would say understandably so. We had the Hebrew widows being taken care of and the Grecian widows not. That's a problem. We shouldn't discriminate in church. We shouldn't discriminate, period. But And so they're rightfully complaining. I'm not saying murmuring's right, but I understand why this has happened and why it's being brought up. But we saw how problems can be overcome to the glory of God and how a church can keep moving forward in, in the face of issues because Satan has now moved his attacks back inside the church, and that's usually how he works here in America, because we have such protections in our government that most of our attacks are going to come from within. A murmuring will arise. Some of you are funny. You come to me and you go, does that stuff really happen that you mentioned? Yeah. You just happen to be one of the good members. And the rest of you are like terrible. I- um, and whatever you do, don't join. Amen? After, don't join. Uh, all right. Where am I at? Telling people not to join church. You spare no expense in the pastorate here. Um no, I say that because if, if, if a non-member goes, and it's like, well, they weren't members anyway, right? <laughs> what did you expect? Of course there was murmuring. My wife has given me that look. Um, all right, as long as I get popcorn, we're good. And so this problem is handled with good leadership within a proper leadership structure. Long story short, at the direction of the apostles, they chose seven godly men to handle this problem. And they chose seven, or these seven men became the foundation of the office of a deacon. And they were servants who had been ordained to take this ministry burden off of the apostles so they could stay focused on their primary responsibility of prayer and the Word of God. Remember that a church body is made up of many members, and we've all been gifted to serve that particular body where God has led us to. God places us in the body to fulfill a role. 
And when we do what God has gifted us to do, no one person will take upon them more than they should handle. Because, listen, you know it's true. Most places you got 10 or 20% doing all the work. If everyone does what God has gifted them to do, then no one person has to take on so much that it just becomes a burden. Well, I covered a lot last time, and we saw how this direction pleased the whole church. What a blessing. The whole church, amen? Not just the Hebrews, not just the Greeks, the whole church. And by the apostles dealing with this problem quickly and wisely while maintaining their primary responsibility uh, to feed the sheep, we saw the threefold fleshing threefold blessing from God to this church in verse 7. And the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly, and a great company of the priests were obedient to the faith. And because of where this is headed over the next couple chapters, two, three chapters here, remember I mentioned at the close of last week, by elevating these Grecians to a level of leadership, the church is about to get a tidal wave of blessings rushing over it. The Grecians had a perspective the Hebrews didn't yet have. The Grecians were those who were born outside of Judea, raised outside of Judea because of the captivities, and they didn't grow up with the temple. Yeah, there were times they had to report to the temple, right? God had set it up to where there were several times a year he had to do that. But they didn't have a temple, so they went to the synagogues. And the synagogues, frankly, looked a lot like what we have today in the New Testament church, although they, they were wrong in areas because of how they had elevated oral law. But it, it looked a lot like this. And, and so these Grecians were able to come in, and they, they understood sooner than the Hebrews, God does not dwell in temples made with hands. And Stephen's the first one that's going to say that in the next chapter when he's preaching this awesome sermon before the council. Now, that made them feel good. And, and these Grecians, they, they had this, uh, this view that others didn't have yet here in Jerusalem. And the gospel is now going to spread out of Jerusalem. Now, it's going to start as a result of persecution. But Philip, who is also a Grecian, is, is mentioned in chapter 8 as the one who goes down to Samaria. Samaria. Why is that important? Because uh, the, the Judaizers, in Jer- they hated the Samaritans. They were half-breed Jews. They didn't like them. And yet, that's where the gospel is going to be heading. And and my whole point last week at the close was this. When we break down our prejudices, when we stop looking at the externals, stop looking at the color of a person's skin, stop looking at their background, stop looking at all these things that we think don't make them a good Christian, and all of a sudden, start welcoming these people. All of a sudden, you get a different perspective. That's what's happening. And it's leading to phenomenal blessings from God. We ought to be, and we are, because I hear it from other pastors, we are those that are taking in the ones others don't want. You ought to hear what some people tell me. I came from this church. This is what they told me on the way out. Y'all ain't nothing but adulterers married together. A pastor saying this to a member of his flock as they're on their way out. Been married for 30 something years. 
I don't understand it. I don't get it. Where's all this hate come from? Anyway, I'm going I'm to preach that. I can feel it because it's just, it makes my blood boil. It's like, why are we so wound tight over things that God, it's like, sorry, you're not welcome here because of this. Last I checked, none of us were perfect. Listen, we can do this without compromise. So don't, oh, you're compromising. No, we're not compromising. Amen? We're going to follow the Word of God. But when prejudices are removed, the gospel expands. Amen. With that, keeping in mind this, this influx now of this leadership, we're going to see Stephen now come front and center here in verse 8 and following. Look at what it says. And Stephen, full of faith and power. Oh, imagine that. A Grecian can be full of faith. I'm feeling it. Okay, let me focus. Full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. And of course, Satan doesn't like this. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines, Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and of them a Cilicia and of Asia, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Then they suborned men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. They stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered us. And all that sat in the council, looking steadfastly on him, saw his face as if it had been the face of an angel. Amen. Well, I'm sure most of you know this account doesn't end here. It'll continue through verse 2 of chapter 8. And Stephen will be martyred as a result of what starts here in chapter 6. And I'm sure you can already see the similarities between what happened to Christ and what is now happening to Stephen. I think that's important. I may not get into why I think that is. In verse 8 we get a description of the kind of man Stephen was. We get his character and, and we get a look at this and we understand this is a man who was unworthy of death. We already saw in verse 5 that Stephen was a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost. And now we are told that Stephen was full of faith and power. To be full of faith means Stephen was replete or covered over with faith. He contained all the faith that he could hold. If I say I fill up my, my tank by pumping in nine gallons of gas into a 10-gallon gas tank, is my tank full? And so ask yourself, am I full of faith? There may be some areas where you are full of faith. For example, I'm full of faith when it comes to salvation through Christ. I have absolutely no doubts that I've been saved through the blood of Christ. I have no doubts that I'm secure in Christ. My faith in this area leaves no room for unbelief. It's full. Are you with me? 
I can, I can confess, though, there were times when it wasn't always this way. Early on in my walk with the Lord, I occasionally had those moments of, am I truly saved? Maybe some of you have been through that, and I know some have. So what made the difference? It was the Word of God. Because what does the Bible say in Romans ten seventeen? For faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Once I allowed the truth of God's Word to penetrate my heart, all the doubts fled away. Is everybody with me? Those doubts were gone, and I was able to move on in my Christian growth. I mention this because I know many struggle in this area. But it's usually because you've bought into, and, and this isn't a slam, but you unknowingly, you've bought into man's idea of what it means to be saved instead of fully trusting what God says. Some man gets in the pulpit and he testifies how once he was saved, he never doubted it, he never touched a particular sin again, and he presents it in such a way that makes the hearer think, I should have had that same experience. But the fact is, we don't all have the same experiences. We all come from different beginnings. And, and listen, I know this to be true. I'm going to word it like it's not. It might be more difficult for the one who was raised in a good church to understand the grace of God as quickly as the one who was saved out of a life of wickedness. Both were wicked, don't misunderstand me. But the transformation that took place outwardly looks different. And this can cause some people to doubt. As I was preparing this, I wondered, God, why are you having me dwell on this thought? It really doesn't have anything to do with the text. I trust it's for someone. But what I want you to understand is God wants us to move past the fundamental principles of the doctrines of Christ. He wants us to grow beyond that. He wants us to become into the fullness of Christ, to mature in the Lord. The writer of Hebrews dealt with this at the end of chapter 5 and the beginning of chapter 6. Hebrews 5.12, For when for the time ye ought to be teachers... You have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and, have, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. A couple of verses later, the beginning of chapter 6, Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. And of course, if you keep reading there, he'll list some other things in the following verses. In other words, I'll put it to you this way. You need to get salvation settled. Say, preacher, come on, this is Sunday night crowd. And what you got to do is you got to grow beyond the first principles of the fundamental doctrines so that you can continue to grow. I remember when we were having kids... <laughs> They would have these checkups and they would health and wellness checkups, which to me are stupid. It's like, sorry, your kid's only in the 50th percentile and this one's in the 75th. So what? So he grows slower. So he grows more and whatever. Whatever, parents, do your thing. Uh, 
I mean, I was in the military. I think we kind of had to do these things. I can't remember, but, uh, and it's like, I don't, whatever. If you walk later, you walk later. He'll walk, he'll figure it out, amen? Because um, I'm not going to keep bringing him stuff. He'll figure it out. My mom always reminds me I was a late walker. I make it look good now, though, amen? <laughs> Health and wellness check. It's like, you know what? We need a checkup. <laughs> Where are we at in our growth? Because we've got some people that have been in the faith for decades, and yet they're still stuck in the first principles. It's like, move past that. This is the time you ought to be teachers. If you want to grow into maturity in Christ, you have to allow God's holy word to increase your faith. Because these principles and doctrines are found here, it says in Hebrews that I was quoting. They are the oracles of God. It is the word of God. And as you learn to trust in God's word, you begin to fill up your faith. Because these principles and these doctrines are found in the word of God. As you take the word of God into your heart... you start to see, now I know what it means in whatever area you're struggling with. And you realize, okay, this is how I have to have faith. And you exercise that, and it begins to eliminate that struggle. And by the way, as you continue to grow, you're going to identify other struggles along the way. Because God is growing you. And and He'll put His finger on some things and say, you got to grow in this area. And you go to the Word of God, you see what it says, and you just keep growing. Is everybody with me? I I know this is Christianity 101, but listen, a lot of you ain't even in the Word of God anyway. And you wonder why you struggle in faith. And and so you got to go to the Word of God, and you want to move on to strong meat. I don't know why I'm saying this. This this is what a lot of people do. They stay on the milk of the Word by only quoting what a pastor says. Well, you got to listen to this guy. Why don't you listen to the Holy Ghost? Man, why am I feeling feisty, brother? You did good this morning. I'm not mad at you. Now, don't misunderstand me. I can't stand up here and say unequivocally that I don't have any areas where I struggle in my my faith, my walk with God, and I'm ashamed of that. And I can probably give you the Scripture reference that I need to go to, so don't come and tell me which one it is. I, I, I know. It's like there it is, and it's... But what's the problem? It's got to go from here to here. It's got to go from my head to my heart. And and as I thought about this, I thought, no wonder the apostles come to Jesus and they say, increase our faith. And what's interesting is what Jesus said in reply, isn't it? Jesus says, if you had faith of the grain of a mustard seed. They're saying, increase our faith. It almost sounds like to me, Jesus saying, you already have faith. Now use the faith that you have. To me, it's almost a Christian paradox. Because Paul wrote to the Thessalonians in 2 Thessalonians 1.3, We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is meet, because that your faith, (coughs) excuse me, because that your faith groweth exceedingly. But Jesus said in Matthew 21.21, If you have faith and doubt not. This is interesting, so I'd put it to you this way. The same faith, hear me now, the same faith you exercise in placing your faith and trust in Christ for your salvation uh, to to be saved is the exact same faith that you need to grow and to mature. 
So you have faith. Now it's just a matter of you taking that faith and applying it to the areas that you need help in. And with that faith that you already have, and I know this is easier said than done, but according to Jesus, if we'll do this, then you might say unto this sycamine tree, be thou plucked up by the root and be thou planted in the sea, and it should obey you. I hope this is making sense. I think we already possess the faith necessary. I just think we haven't exercised it the way that we should. Like building muscles. I mean, you have to exercise. Back to our text, we need to ask ourselves, are we full of faith? Or better yet, let me put it this way, would God say you're full of faith? The Holy Spirit is giving this to Dr. Luke to pin down. And God said he was a man full of faith. Do you trust fully in his word in every area? Do you trust his promises entirely? This is really a humbling thought, isn't it? If this can't be said of us, then where do we need to go? To God's Word. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the Word of God. And so I guess all I'm saying here in this beginning portion is just let you know, the Word of God is important. Don't just close it up and tuck it away this week. Take some time. And I tell people, I know you're busy. I get it. Listen, you can just take a little chunk of Proverbs. Get that into your heart. Chew on it all day. Get all you can out of it. We see Stephen was also full of power. Why was this? Because he was full of the Holy Ghost. There's a definite connection in Scripture between power and the Holy Ghost. Remember what Jesus said in Acts 1.8. But you shall receive power... After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you. If we want power, we got to have the Holy Ghost. And so what I see is this. When we are full of faith, we have emptied, we have emptied ourselves of, of self. Because we're now full of faith. And when faith has place in our life, it opens the door for God to come in. Right? And I know He indwells us when we're saved, but understand, we can, we can quench and grieve the Holy Ghost. And so when, when we are full of faith, or at least we're striving in this direction, then it allows an environment in which the Holy Ghost can now control us more because we are yielding ourselves to God's Word. And that in turn gives us power. Once we are out of the way, we can be filled. But let's face it, self gets in the way. Does the Holy Ghost have control over every area of your life? Now, we see how this all ties together. An increase in faith will increase the Holy Ghost influence in our life. An increase in the Holy Ghost will increase God's power upon our lives. And in the second half of verse 8, we see that because Stephen was full of faith and power, he did great wonders and miracles among the people. Stephen becomes the first named who was not an apostle to perform great wonders and miracles among the people. Now, lest we expect this same ability, we have to go back to verse 6, where the apostles laid hands on them. This ability was given during the apostolic generation. And as the apostles would lay hands on people, 
The apostles died out, so did these miracles. So don't look to go lay your hands on somebody and instantly their leprosy is gone. God may choose to do that, but don't think you're going to get, you're, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying. The apostles went off the scene, so did these sign gifts. Why? Because we have the Word of God and the church is firmly established. However, being full of faith and power in the Holy Ghost will still be manifested to us through our trust in God's Word, and listen to me now, through our effectiveness in presenting the Word of God to the lost. And I don't want you to miss this in all of this because much like we saw after the man that was healed who went walking and leaping and praising God, we saw in the next chapter, in chapter 4 there, that people were being saved not because they saw the miracle, but because the Word of God had gone forth. And, and it's the same thing here. Stephen's performing all these miracles and wonders. But, but a Holy Ghost-filled person can give the Word of God in a way that is effective. It, it doesn't mean you're a walking Bible. All right. I know a guy, he claimed to be a walking Bible. He said he could quote, I don't know how many verses, thousands and thousands of verses. Wonderful. I can't. Right? I, I do try to memorize it, and I do the best I can, but my mind is, uh, anyway, it's like trying to speak another language. God doesn't want to send me to another country. Amen? I'd be like, what? I don't know how y'all do it. Amen? I mean, they go from singing in English to singing in Spanish. So it's an effectiveness in presenting God's Word to the lost. Now, we're going to see this in Stephen. He has an uncanny ability to wield the Word of God. So, well, he must have went to the best seminaries. No, no, no. He was full of the Holy Ghost. One thing among several things that was great about Stephen was that while he possessed apostolic ability, he did not think himself above serving tables. He did the work of helping the Grecian widows and being a good servant who was found faithful in little, God gave him more. God may have bestowed upon you some great talents, and I'm sure He has because He's gifted you for the church. But you need to prove yourself in service in other areas as well. And as you do, God opens up more and greater opportunities for you to continue to be used. And I say this for our young preachers, be patient. Show yourself willing to serve tables. Don't expect to just jump to Moses let me put it this way. Don't expect to jump to Joshua's level unless you're willing to be Moses' servant. This is a common problem with young people, even in the, the business world. Oh, Dad's making six figures. I ought to come out of college making that much. No, go flip some burgers. Well, not out of college, I guess, but go get a job. Amen. Start at the bottom, work your way up, and shut up. Amen. It's similar in the church. No, you've got to go serve some tables. Hey, the toilet just overflowed. We need somebody to do it. I'll do it. God gifted me to preach. I'm not doing that. Don't try to level jump to a position without first serving down here. You see, Joshua was down in the valley while Moses was up on the mountaintop. When Moses was holding his hands up, Joshua was down commanding some armies, stepping in the blood and the guts. In verse 9, the plot thickens. Then there arose certain of the synagogues, and he lists all these areas. 
and they're disputing with Stephen. Now, once again, what we find is that it's the religious crowd that is upset here. And, and they're upset with Stephen. They're disputing with him. And I want to remind you of something we've been seeing now as a trend through the book of Acts. When did this disputing arise? When God was at work. He was performing miracles and, and, and wonders. Now Satan shows up. And I'm just telling you, don't think that the blessings of God mean the absence of attacks. Or that somehow we're off target or, or something's not going right or I knew something was wrong with that church. No. Maybe that church is on target and God's blessing and now all of a sudden Satan doesn't like it. And, and so now Satan comes in and, and look what he's doing. Sure enough, he's now moved his attacks inward again. We've seen this volley back and forth through the book of Acts. I'll try to persecute them from the outside. Doesn't work. I'll try to move into the inside. Didn't work. I'll move back from the outside. Didn't work. I'll move back to the inside. And that's what Satan does. And so we face all these attacks. And like I said, here it's mostly internal things. These murmurings that rise up, which are really a shame to God's people. Because if a man hateth his brother, he hath not God dwelling in him. And so the cycle continues here. And this time, the attack doesn't come from those at the temple, as in the previous chapters, but it's now coming from the synagogues. These were Hellenist Jews, like Stephen. They were raised outside of Judea in a Greek culture as a result of the dispersion. Perhaps this is why they're coming to Stephen. He's one of them, or was. I won't break all of these down here, and you can research it more if you like, but one note of interest, isn't it, that the synagogue in Cilicia is listed. Does that ring a bell for anyone? This is interesting because where was Saul of Tarsus from? Cilicia. It could very well be he's here, and he's part of this disputing. And this could very well be part of what was led to the pricks in his heart that he was kicking against. He's, he's hearing this man who is full of, you know, supposedly, pr presumably, he's hearing this man that is full of faith, full of the Holy Ghost and of power. And we're going to see him show up here in a little bit once we get to chapter 8. Actually, it might even be at the end of chapter 7, but either way, he shows up. <laughs> And so, here's all these people in these synagogues, and, and they're disputing with this one man. This religious crowd is rising up against Christianity. And that's why I'm careful to say I'm not in a religion. I, I'm in a walk with God. Now, we're not told expressly here what they were disputing. But we can infer as we go through this what was being said or the kind of topics that were being talked about, such as Moses, the temple, the law, God. These kind of things were being talked about. And, and we'll say more when we get to chapter 7 because <laughs> Stephen just lays it out for him. I mean, you talk about boldness. Uh, for now, we see in verse 10 that they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And as I stated earlier, this is a result of being full of the Holy Ghost. Now, notice we are not told that they were not able to resist Stephen. Don't, don't miss that. But they were not able to resist the wisdom and the Spirit by which He spake. 
See the difference? The Spirit of God was speaking through him. And so in reality, they're not disputing with Stephen. They're disputing with God. <laughs> Jesus said in Luke 21, 15, For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries shall not be able to gainsay nor resist. Jesus didn't say they're all going to get saved. He said, but they're not going to be able to resist the wisdom by which you speak. And we're seeing that on display here. Matthew Henry noted this, they could neither support their own arguments nor answer His. He proved by such irresistible arguments that Jesus is the Christ and delivered Himself with so much clearness and fullness that they had nothing to object against what He said. Though they were not convinced, yet they were confounded. End quote. I like that. This is the working of the Holy Ghost, which is what we all need. Don't let the charismatic scare you from the Holy Ghost. Right? I, I always say, being Baptist cramps my style. I'm Baptocostal. Amen. Let's, let's get excited up in here. It is the Word of God that we need to be able to give. And we need to be full of the Holy Ghost in, in order to do this with power. There are diversity of gifts, but your gift is for the body. We need to be able to go outside into the world and with the help of the Holy Ghost, give the Word of God because the Word of God is what can reach into the heart of a sinner and show him his need for a Savior. As the Holy Ghost is leading through that. And so what am I telling you? We have to be well-versed in the Word of God. How well-versed are you? Titus chapter 1, verses 9-11, through 11, it says, "...holding fast the faithful word as, as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things they ought not for filthy lucre's sake." You know, Micah could say in Micah 3.8, "...but truly I am full of power by the Spirit of the Lord." and of judgment, and of might, to declare unto Jacob his transgressions and to Israel his sin. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, And my speech and my preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom, but in the demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And he says this, that your faith should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How well do you know the Word of God tonight? Can you stand your ground when disputes arise? And if you live in the world long enough, disputes will arise. If you work, you know, and you bring up God, you're going to have disputes. Tyler and I are at each other every day. If you mention God, get ready for the disputes. And, and you cannot do it in your own strength. And that's really the point here. You have to be in the Word of God, but don't expect the Word of God to speak through you if you haven't been in His Word and get it into your heart to begin with. There's got to be something in the well in order to come up. 2 Timothy 2.15, study. Why do you like the King James? It's the only one that tells you to study. Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed. Rightly dividing the Word of truth. 1 Peter 3.15 and 16, But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you of a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Boy, what, what a perfect man to write that. The man who denied his Lord three times. Having a good conscience, he writes, that whereas they speak evil of you as of evildoers, 
they may be ashamed that falsely accuse your good conversation in Christ. And that's going to happen here before this account's over with. And sure enough, they speak evil of Stephen. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And, and listen, what happens? This is a defense mechanism of a lot of people that once you begin to have the conversation with them and the disputings arise and you show them the Word of God and they can't resist it, well, you're just stupid. Y'all are just brainwashed. No, you just won't admit that you need to be saved. And, and, and it's a defense mechanism. It props up. You've been proven wrong. No, I haven't. Okay. And so what do they do? They resort to slander and false accusations. Galatians 4.16, Am I therefore become your enemy because I tell you the truth? We see in verse 11 that they suborned men, which means this, they stealthily colluded with some men, told them they trained them up in what they needed to say, and then they paid them to say it. Usually it, usually it includes money. We're not necessarily told that here, but that's usually what it means. And we're just going to look at what follows. I don't have time to finish this, but look at verses 11 through 14. We'll come back to it next time. Then they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against... Now, now keep in mind, he, he's, just, he's just given them the Word of God with full of faith, power, and the Holy Ghost. They're disputing with him and they could not resist it. And here's what they do. They suborn men which said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. We're going to see in chapter 7, this is not true. And they stirred up the people, and the elders and the scribes, and came upon them and caught them and brought them to the council. They're taking them by force. And here we go set up false witnesses which said, This man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place in the law. We have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered unto us. It's amazing how the lost can hear, but they can't hear. And, and we know a veil is over. And, and once their heart turns to Christ, the veil is removed. Now, I've highlighted this early in our series. I'll do so again now. But Jesus warned that this treatment was on the way. Matthew 10, verses 16 through 20, He said, Behold, I send you forth as sheep in the midst of wolves. Be therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in their synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake for a testimony against them and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given at you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the Spirit of your Father which speaketh in you. That's what we're seeing. And I'll close by reminding us that we need to strive to be a people full of faith, of power, and of the Holy Ghost. So let me just close with some questions. Are you growing in your faith tonight? Can you say in your heart, I'm growing? Are you growing in the Word of God? Are you getting in the Word of God? Hide God's Word in your heart. Listen to me, church. Every generation I know has been able to say this, but the fight is upon us. The fight is here. The disputers are here. 
The fight is on, O Christian soldier. We can see the battle heating up in our nation. Unless you're blind. The disputers are here, and listen to me, we have been raised up for this hour. Will we be among those who can speak with wisdom and spirit which cannot be resisted by the world? It doesn't mean that they're going to fall down and say, oh yeah, now I see it, i got to get saved. But it means that you are able to convince the gainsayers that Christ is God. And what they do with that is up to them. But can you answer their questions? In Jude verses 3 and 4, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, Jude's like, this is what I was going to write unto you about. It was needful for me to write unto you something else. Exhorts you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares who were before of old ordained to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God and the Lord Jesus Christ. So listen to me, church. Are you contending for the faith? Are you even able to contend? You shouldn't have to always, you ought to grow to a point in your faith that you don't, and grow in the Word of God, that you don't always have to go, well, let me go ask somebody. Can you wield the Word of God with precision? And and listen to me, if you walk with God, it'll happen. My my wife and I know there's times when, man, we'll we'll be engaged in a conversation, we'll just say it that way. Not she and I, but with other folks. And all of a sudden, the verses just start pouring out. And I remember once my wife said, I didn't know you knew that much Bible. I know, you have no faith in me. <laughs> There's been times she's been talking to some people. I don't know if I'm at liberty to spill all her beans. And I'm just awed. How did you know that? It is God working in us to wield the Word of God. But that didn't just happen miraculously. You had to be in the Word of God as well. you understand what I'm saying? So can you wield the Word of God? It is sharper than a two-edged sword. So we need to be a people of the book as a church so that none can reject the truth without being proven that either they are willfully ignorant of the truth of God's Word or they just don't care. And so until next time, let's pray.